Father, we can speak the words Isaiah spoke. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. So we don't come to you this morning uh, perfect and cleaned up, except by the blood of Christ. Except by Jesus and by what you've done. We have no pretense, Father, of being religious people who think that we can dress up and hide our sin. But we know that there is washing and cleansing that comes through Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I ask you this morning as we go into this teaching, this very serious teaching, that you will, as the backdrop of all this, pour out your grace. And I pray that even going through difficult waters here, that it will be grace that is heard and grace that is understand, grounded, Father, in the truth. Because we want to know the truth. We know, Jesus, You said the truth will set us free. And we don't want to be bound up by old traditions, laws, culture, or anything else. We simply want to know the truth of Your Word so that we can walk in the freedom of Your grace. Holy Spirit, I ask that You will bless this time together. Bless the teaching of Your Word and speak Your words, not mine. That we might hear and know the heart of our Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to Him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, wrote the following. He said, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Few topics are more difficult to discuss than the topic of divorce, specifically in the church today. It's a tough one. I have struggled with this teaching for this morning. I didn't want to. I argued with the Lord about it. My idea was tuck it away somewhere deep embedded into a Wednesday night study where people might not even catch it if they're a little bit sleepy because I've been going on too long. You know? Move by it quick and move on. And the Lord won't let me. He held my feet to the fire on this one. This is something I believe that we as an entire fellowship need to hear. I spoke about it first hour. I'm speaking about it now. We need to know the truth. We need to know the truth of His Word. Speaking the truth in love and building up the body in love are a primary concern to the Lord. We do a lot of things as Christians and in the church. We worship. We teach the Word. We fellowship together. All good things. But the thing of greatest primacy to the Lord is loving each other and building up one another in love. That's, that's the bottom line. That's what we're supposed to be primarily about. And it's not love to avoid the truth. It's love to tell the truth. You parents, you would do that with your own children. You don't want to lie to them. You speak truth to them. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Some of you are going to disagree with my conclusions. That's okay. It's not Rick's word I want you to hear today anyway. It's the Lord's word. But I ask you, even if you disagree with me, to take your conclusions to the word of God and compare what you think, what your opinion is, with what God's word says. Test it out there. And I also want to ask you to hang with me this morning as we consider what the Bible honestly teaches regarding marriage and divorce and even remarriage. 
If it gets uncomfortable, just hang in there. I realize that many here have suffered the pain of divorce. Gone through it yourselves, if not having had a parent or a parent's divorce or uh, children even divorce. I know some are in the throes of marital strife even as I speak. Some are looking at divorce right now. But I truly believe if we will seek the Father's will over and above our own, He will make good out of the bad. He will take what's broken and torn in our relationships and He will make good out of it. Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Not mine, not the shepherd's, not some friend, not yours. Those who are called according to His purpose. And we can't always see that. We can't always see how, God, how could you make good come out of this marriage? This marriage that is so torn and rocky and embittered. This battle, this fight that's going, how could we possibly see good out of this? There's one way. Being called according to His purpose. Be focused on His will for you. Sadly, where divorce is concerned, the belief of many Christians today is divorced itself from the truth. It's not based on the truth. It's based on how we feel. It's based on wanting to be comfortable in our churches. And so it's not talked about at all, or when it is talked about, it's fluffed up to be easy. To be swallowed without too much pain, too much difficulty. Yeah, people get divorced. You know, I expect that from our postmodern American culture. That doesn't surprise me a bit. Hearing it come out of culture today, a culture that sees divorce as par for the course. That's just what happens. It's just what goes on. Young people getting married today saying, yeah, we're going to get married, and some make it and some don't, no big deal. We'll do our best. We'll give it a try. We'll take a shot. And if it doesn't work out, oh well. Well, that's the attitude of culture. And so because of that, more than one out of three Americans have or will go through at least one divorce in their lifetime. Over 50% of all marriages end in divorce. If you're trying to figure out how do those two things mean, one out of three and 50% are two different statistics, and that's true. 50% of all marriages end in divorce, and that includes second marriages, third marriages, fourth marriages. And by the way, if you didn't already know this, once one divorce has happened in a relationship, it's much more likely that that the stats just go up and up and up with every divorce, it's more likely another one's going to come. As advanced a superpower, as America claims to be the leader in the world, we are number three on the top list of the top ten nations in the world with the highest divorce rates. But what's disheartening to me is not what's going on in culture. It's what's going on in the church today. A statistic that has held fast for more than a decade now That when it comes to divorce, whether a person is born again, an evangelical Christian or not, makes no difference in in the divorce rates. In other words, the statistics are the same. Just as many Christians are divorced annually as non-Christians. Something's wrong, gang. That shouldn't be happening. Not if we are a people who are patterning our lives and our will after the will of our Father. Are we just not listening Is God not speaking to us? Has He not been clear? Well, part of the problem, I believe, is when we take a Pharisaical approach to the Bible. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees approach Jesus. So they're taking the obvious Pharisaical approach. (laughs) Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The Pharisees are trying to corner Jesus here. The Bible says they're trying to test him. Well, why would that question be a test? You might want to jot this down. It's the hermeneutical precept of the law. Hermeneutics. It's not what you do to your dog when you don't want it to have puppies, okay? Ah! Hermeneutics. <laughs> hermeneutics. It's the art of interpretation. It's a big theological word. We've talked about that before. People take that word hermeneutic. What it means is how you interpret Scripture. How you understand it. And there are two very specific hermeneutical approaches to divorce in Jesus' day. The rabbis, the school of of Rabbi Hillel, that school taught that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. She burns the toast, kick her out. You can do it, according to Rabbi Hillel and his followers. And some 50% or so of Israel followed that teaching. Of course, why not? How easy is that? She takes me off, she's gone. Think about what power a husband could wield over his wife if he believed that. 
the liberal school that, that taught that. They, and this is real. This is true. I, I, I'm telling you the truth here. They would just have to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, sign a parchment, and the deed was done. The Hillel school. Which reminds me of Steve Martin in the late 70s. He gave a what he called a very mature way of breaking up with a girl. He said, you walk up to the girl, say, I break with thee, I break with thee, I break with thee, and then you throw dog poop on her shoes. <laughs> So you've got the Hillel school of thought, which says you can divorce for almost any reason whatsoever, no big deal. The more conservative school, the rabbinical school of Shammai, taught that a man could only divorce his wife upon proof of sexual immorality. Okay, so what did the Bible teach? Turning your Bibles back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible. Go back to the beginning and just skip ahead until you find it. Deuteronomy, chapter 24. Beginning here in verse 1. We find ourselves here in the middle of the law that Moses is giving to the people of Israel. And, and Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away, watch this, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the Hillel school would look at that verse and say, well, there it is. If you find something about her that, that displeases you, some indecency in her, she doesn't comb her hair right. She doesn't wear the right kind of robe like the other women do. You can kick her out. You have that right. Hillel interprets scripture to say that. What does the Lord think? What is God's view of divorce? Skip over to Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. Book of Malachi, chapter 2. Malachi the prophet brings to us God's feeling about divorce that is absolutely and completely unmistakable. You will not miss how God feels. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. God is speaking. He says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God deals with covenant seriously. The covenants He made with Israel, the covenant He made with the church gang, as far as the Lord is concerned, is irrevocable. And so the marriage covenant to the Lord is a big deal. He says in verse 15, Not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Hear it again. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Have we done this, gang, by rationalization? And by excusing away divorce as something that simply must be culturally accepted? It happens all the time. We just kind of accept it as what it is. Just the way of things. She doesn't understand my needs. Mentally, he left me a long time ago. Oh, he's been married to his job for years. Well, well she, she's not as exciting as some of the younger models out there. <laughs> it's treachery, gang. It's treachery. And the Lord would have none of it. In verse 15, he says, Even if you have a remnant of my spirit, you wouldn't think like this. 
if even a little of my spirit was in you, you, you wouldn't think of dealing treacherously, gentlemen, with the wife of your youth. You wouldn't send her away. The Pharisees not only ignore Malachi's prophecy, they misunderstand something in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 24, what we just shared, what they misunderstand is the Lord was not handing down a law in favor of divorce. What He was doing was acknowledging the practice of it and putting parameters around it so an already immoral situation would not get worse. He did that with a lot of things in the law. As the fledgling people of Israel in their spiritual infancy were beginning to grow up, the Lord put parameters around things so that it wouldn't get worse than it was. It didn't mean that He accepted it. Slavery is a great example. And non-Christians love to point out slavery in the Bible. Well, Christians, your own Bible encourages slavery, right? No, no. The Lord in the law did give healthy parameters for dealing with slaves because the people were already there. And so that the slave wouldn't be more mistreated the Lord put fences around it and said, here's how, for now, you're going to deal with the treatment of slaves. Of course, the same God also gave the year of Jubilee that said everybody's free. Everybody goes home. Every debt, gone. That's the heart of the Father. But He, in the law, would put parameters about things so that Israel could walk and begin to understand righteousness. Start to learn what was good versus what was bad. I mean, we have you know, thousands of years to look back on. Thousands of years so that, as Paul said, we have no excuse. We know what's right and wrong. We have seen it. We've got the Word. We've got history behind us. So we can say, oh, okay, we get it. They did not. And so God was putting parameters. And you'll notice in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, He never approves divorce. Not once. It says, when you do this and do that and the other thing and involve yourself in this way, when all this stuff happens, then... The only law, he says, is the woman who's been divorced twice cannot then go back to the first husband. That marriage is dead. Let it die. God's law. Why didn't God write rules for marriage into the law more specifically? That would have been nice. Why didn't He do that? He did. He already had. In fact, in Torah law, which would include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all five books, God began at the very beginning of all things, laying out His law, His standard for marriage today. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Talk about the hermeneutical precept. Now take a look at the higher principle. The higher principle of creation. Genesis chapter 2. That's an easy book to find, by the way. Right back there. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name, which I'm sure was fun. I mean, can you just imagine Adam being there with the Lord and the creatures are going by him and he goes, cow. And there's no other name that's better. Right? Cow. Duck-billed platypus. He must have been having a great time that day. (laughs) Naming all these animals as they go by. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Why would God do that? Parade all the animals in front of him. To make absolutely clear to Adam that what he was about to do was special, was for him, was unique to humanity, and was above, not connected to, but was above the animal kingdom. This is one of the real tragedies of evolution, is that it says that we tie into the animal kingdom. We don't. We were created separate from both man and woman. Watch what happens. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Oh, come on. How could he do that? Make a rib into a woman. How could he make dust into a man? He's God. How could he create something from nothing? He's God. Why would he take, though, a rib from Adam to make the woman? Why not just create the woman over in some other part of the garden and then as Adam's coming around the corner and sees her for the first time, I know he'd still name her the same thing. You know, whoa, man. (laughs) Why? Why is it 
that he, he goes through the falderall here of taking a rib. To show Adam in the greatest object lesson we have for marriage that man and woman are to be one. That woman comes from man. Sorry, ladies, you do. We were first. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> of course, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, and man comes from woman. So without you, ladies, we wouldn't be here either. See how dependent God already makes us on each other? How important it is that there's a connection there, but read on. The Lord God fashioned in a woman the rib, which had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, this is not in my notes, but I've got to point this out. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and become one flesh with his wife. Guess who has primacy in your life, gentlemen? It's not mom or dad. It's your wife. Ladies, when you get married, the most important people in your life are no longer mom or dad. It is husband. He's first. She's first. That's the way God set it up. So much so that He said they shall become one flesh. One flesh. God's prescription for marriage, from all the way back at day one, His prescription for marriage is one man for one woman as one flesh for one life. That's God's plan. Lest we mistake it at all, that's what He set up. And to make it even a little bit more intimate and intense for you, the phrase one flesh there, the phrase one is achad in the Hebrew. It's the same word that the Lord uses in Deuteronomy 6.4 where He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's God. The oneness God desires for our marriages is as intimate as the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. That's God. One. It means a plurality, a unity of one. And that's what God is looking for in a marriage. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together back in Matthew 19, let man not separate. Because when a man and a woman come together physically, sexually, and emotionally, something happens spiritually that unifies them as one. This is one of the greatest tragedies in our educational system today. This is not taught. This is not explained. While the high schools are passing out condoms like candy, what they're missing is this truth. That when a man and a woman, when a boy and a girl come together in a sexual way, there is a spiritual union that happens. Why is it that the kids who get together in a relationship and are sexually active, when they break up, why it is so absolutely devastating? Because you're ripping something apart that's already begun to happen spiritually. There is a connection far beyond the physical. While our culture says, ah, just be safe, just be protected, it's absolutely ridiculous because we miss the truth. The truth of the union that happens in that place and at that time. How does God feel about unity? Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's not legalism, gang. That's our created state. It's the way things are supposed to be. It's how God intended for a man and a woman to come together and be one. And that's why, my friends... There is so much pain in relationships today. Because you can't divorce a spouse and walk away. It doesn't happen. And those of you who have gone through it, you know what I mean. I don't have to tell you the pain and the heartache and the headaches and the difficulty that remains there for life. I had a gentleman come up to me after first hour. A gentleman who has been divorced more than once. And his words to me after all this was, and I was concerned. Because I don't, want to, I don't want to speak judgment here this morning. But his words, his response was, I wish I had known this. I wish I had known back then because I created for myself carnage and pain. And my father didn't want that for me. And he doesn't want it for you today. Why does God hate divorce? Because divorce rips people apart. And it leaves wounds that never go away. You deal with it all your lives. Verse 7 of Matthew 19. So the Pharisees, they say to Jesus, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? I love that, a certificate of divorce. What do you do, frame that and put it on the wall? <laughs> My certificate. Got a little gold seal on it. 
And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. That's the higher principle of creation. We were created again for oneness in marriage. One man with one woman as one flesh for one life. The Pharisaical approach to Scripture, the problem is they they take it legally. They look at it as a legal document with gaps and loopholes, trying to find what they have to keep and what they can get away with not keeping. What they have to wear and what they don't have to wear. It's religion, gang. That's what religion does. Looking at the Bible and saying, okay, what do I have to do? How close to sin can I get without really sinning? I've always loved that question. (laughs) When I taught series on on sexuality in in high school um, and in youth ministry number one question asked by teenagers every time we would would go through a a series dealing with with sexual purity the number one question how far is too far how far can I go Pastor Rick and I said well imagine me sitting in the back seat (laughs) I think maybe you ought to move your arm there kiddo More seriously, and this is what I did say, imagine Jesus sitting in the front seat with you. And do whatever you're comfortable doing with Him right there. And that's not, you know, it's not a statement of judgment. It's like, oh, Jesus is watching me. No, it's Jesus is here, man. And Him being here is going to make this relationship better. Him being there in your marriage game makes the relationship better. You know, most of the problems of our marriages could be solved if, if husbands and wives would love Jesus more. Put Him in the middle. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and love Him, husbands. Wives, love Jesus. And in so doing, amazingly, remarkably, you'll find yourself coming together in a whole new way. Now the Pharisees, they approached the Word as a legal document. They took the low road of interpreting the Scriptures to meet their lifestyle instead of the high road of altering their lifestyle to fit with the Word of God. Because, as Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth sets you free. And so as we pattern ourselves after what the Lord teaches, we find freedom in that. But as we go our own hard-headed, rebellious way, I'm going to do it my way. This is, no, this is, that's going to be too hard. I'm choosing this road. We end up hurting ourselves. We end up messing it up. Boy, I'm glad we don't take the low road when we approach Scripture. You know, I'm glad we always see it the way we... Do we live with one foot in the world and one foot in the Word? Man, guilty. That's so easy to do. I'll tell you what, on Wednesday nights as I'm heading back home after Bible study, I am so in the Word. Man, I'm a holy dude. Until I put one foot in the door. And Paul wrote... Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the Pharisees would ask, how close can I get to sin and still keep the law? How far is too far? Where's the line? The follower of Jesus says, how close can I get to my Savior? How close can I get to the Father? If I'm looking at the Father and desiring to be close to Him, guess what? I'm not even thinking about the sin issue. I'm not over here wondering, you know, teetering on the edge. Oh, I haven't fallen in yet. I'm okay. Safe sex. No. How close can I get to my Savior? That's what Jesus would ask. We hear Jesus here gearing up against divorce. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to do this, but from the beginning it has not been this way. We start to get uncomfortable. We think, oh no, he's going to say it's, it's, it's prohibited. And then we breathe breathe a sigh of relief as He gives a little three-word exception. Again, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Good. I have a way out. I got a back door now. Except for immorality. The word immorality in the Greek is pornea. Sexual immorality, specifically. If we read this as a caveat, which often people do, well, what does the Bible teach about divorce? Well, it says except for sexual immorality. So I have a way out. And I'm going to hang on to that way out. If we read it that way, gang, we miss the heart of what Jesus is saying. He says the Lord permitted, permitted divorce because of the hardness of heart. 
To divorce or not to divorce is not an issue, as far as I'm concerned, of sexual immorality. It's an issue of the heart. Why do affairs happen? Hardness of heart. Why does reconciliation and restoration not happen in a marriage? Hardness of heart. And you can easily say, Rick, you don't understand what she put me through. Or, Pastor, you don't have a clue what he did to me. And you're absolutely right. I don't. But just to be clear, in every instance, adultery and affairs are disdained by the Lord. Anything done that divides marital oneness is hated by the Father. He hates it. He is against it. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So, so if I get you right, Pastor, if the marriage bed is defiled by adultery, you have a way out. Is that what you're saying? Sadly, yes. But it doesn't mean that that's God's will. Kind of like the Deuteronomy parameter. He puts parameters around it. I know your hearts are going to be hardened. I know when an affair happens how painful that is. And I know some hearts are not going to be able to get over it. So, I'm going to allow this. But it is not, hear me on this, divorce is never what God wants. It is never the Father's desire. You're saying even if my husband or wife has had an affair that God would actually tell me not to be divorced. Well, let me put it to you this way. On the worst day of my entire youth ministry career, I sat in my office, having just fired my high school intern that the kids loved, because he was a flake and he earned it, I had to let him go. But you know what? The youth ministry was strong. I had dozens of adult leaders who were involved and the kids loved them. I had a junior high intern who was best, I think, in California. He was awesome with those kids. And that morning, I just found out from him that he was being investigated. I won't go into why. And so his job was over. And I sat there... I'm not equipped to deal with this kind of stuff. And the phone rang in my office, and I picked it up, and I'm going to call him John. It was John on the phone. Not his real name. And I heard his voice, and I went, Oh, good. Man, I love John. Oh, man, I'm so glad you called. What's going on? And there was silence, and he said, Rick, my wife just walked in on me having an affair. Blew me away. You see, John and his wife, and I'm going to call her Tina, John and Tina were the most loved and adored adult leaders I had in our high school ministry. The kids just flocked to them. They surrounded them on Sunday mornings. They were the best of the best. And his wife walked in on him, caught him in the act. And to my mind, it was over. That's it. Done. The carnage is going to come out of this, even for our youth ministry. And it blew me away. I'll tell you what, my concern in all of that was nothing compared to where John was at. And he came to me, and we went to the senior pastor, and we sat and prayed. He repented. Oh, yeah, of course he would repent, because he was caught. Hey, listen to me. Galatians 6 1 and 2. Even if someone is caught in a trespass, we have the responsibility to restore that person. And so he was caught, and he was repentant, and he was heartbroken, and he was torn up about it. And he sat down, not just with me and the senior pastor, but with the shepherds of that church as well. He laid it all out. He he told us the whole story, more than I wanted to hear. Confessed it all. He was willing to do whatever it took. He laid it down. All of his rights, he just gave them up. Tina can do with me as she pleases. I'm not calling a lawyer. I'm not going down any other roads. I will just... I'll do anything to save my marriage. And a year ago, last summer, Cheryl and I had lunch with them and they've, they've been married ever since. It was a hard couple of years, no doubt. Sometimes some of that woundedness and pain resurfaces for them. But they're happier now than they were before because the truth outed. And they were able to see things the way 
They need to be seen. Well, not my marriage, Rick. It's too far gone. My marriage is dead in the water. Well, it seems to me that Jesus was pretty good about raising the dead. Now, but... We, can't, we don't even see things the right way, my wife and I. Yeah, well, He also caused the blind to see. I'm not willing to go down that road. Well, He gave the lame the ability to walk. Is He not capable of restoring a marriage? I'll tell you what it takes. Husbands, wives, and if you're struggling in your marriage right now, here's what it takes. Lay your stuff down. Put down your weapons. And submit to the Lord. His will, not yours. Jesus said, All things are possible to him who believes, Mark nine twenty three. Why why do we think that getting out of one marriage with a sinner and getting into another marriage with a sinner is going to be a better situation? You know? I mean, the, the, the day Cheryl and I got married. And you all remember this, you remember the day of your wedding. It was a great day. This is the best. It just doesn't get any better than this. And I remember looking at Cheryl and thinking, this is great because she's not going to be able to find better anywhere else. <laughs> Some of you might say, sad for her. But please hear what I'm saying on that. I'm not saying that I was the best choice out there. I'm just saying that I was no different than anybody else. What makes a marriage work, gang, is not the right person finding the right person and, oh, you know, they're together now. (laughs) What makes the marriage work is two sinners giving their lives to Jesus, putting Him at the center, and boom, you got a good marriage. And it doesn't matter how different you are, how similar you are, what your tastes are like, whether you're compatible or not, compatibility is a cross-issue, gang. And if we will put the cross in the center of our marriages, they will, I guarantee you, they will get better. Now listen, if, we, if you determine because of adultery that you need to take the way out by divorce, I want you to clearly know what you're choosing. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right, that was a great place to end the message. Yeah, but I'm not done. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. I want you to listen to Paul address these things to the church at Corinth, which was one messed up fellowship, I'll tell you that. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I disagree. Verse 2. And maybe verse 2 explains that. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise also the wife to her husband. Watch this, ladies. The wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Guys, I wish I could stop right there, but I can't. Likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If our culture would read and accept that verse, so much sin would stop. The wife does not have authority over her body. I'm sorry, gang, but no, I'm not sorry. The truth is, the woman does not have the right to choose when it comes to the issue of abortion. You don't. You have sexually connected yourself to a man I don't think the abortion choice is right anyway but it is not her body to choose you become one and when you enter into a marriage covenant and you consummate that marriage you are one ladies your bodies belong to your husbands husbands your bodies belong to your wives Paul goes on in verse 5 and says, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. Paul is talking in the context, gang, of the marriage bed. 
What I'm saying here, what Paul is saying here is sex is part of a healthy marriage. And if sex is not happening in a marriage, then that is a telltale sign that something unhealthy is going on. Not that the, the sex is not the big issue. I'm not saying, okay, everybody go home and woo! You know, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is if that's not happening, husbands and wives, you need to ask each other, why? <coughs> she might say, well, we argue all the time. Why would I want to jump in the sack when we've been fighting all day long? Exactly. Exactly. But Paul says, don't deprive each other. Wives, what you do for your husbands in not depriving him is you give him release, outlet, and shielding against roving eyes. And I'm not saying, ladies, that it's your fault if he goes out and has an affair. But I'm saying you can, biblically and in a holy and wonderful way, you can care for his desire. And it goes the same way the other way. Although I think it's more often for the husbands. Stop depriving each other. Paul goes on in verse 7. He says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Well, how's that? Single. (laughs) Paul may have been a widower or was just never married. There's arguments both sides. You're going to have to ask Paul. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows... It's good for them if they remain even as I. That is, unmarried. Don't jump back into it. And if you're not married, Paul would say, it's Paul talking, if you're not married, don't get married. (laughs) Stay like I am, he says. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Which speaks to 99.9% of us. (laughs) For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, the context is the care and feeding of natural passions. Passions that will be in every man and woman. And the Lord says, here's how you care for it. One man, one woman, one flesh, one life. But then Paul goes on to the married. And please listen closely. Verse 10. To the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. This is not from Paul. This is not his thing. This is God. The wife should not leave her husband. But, if you make that choice, but... If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul doesn't even touch the issue of adultery. He doesn't even add that into the equation. He simply declares the bottom line as both by the Holy Spirit of God, the wife should not leave her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife for any reason. Adultery or not. But... If he or she does, if he or she chooses to take the caveat, the back door, the way out, if you choose that, your choice, according to Scripture, is you remain unmarried. You don't remarry. The Father's heart and the clear teaching of the Word is that even where divorce is allowed, it is not God's first choice. What do I do if I have failed in that area? What do I do if I divorce for the wrong reason? I just divorced because I didn't like her. Didn't like him. We just weren't compatible. What do I do if I remarried (laughs) years ago? I've had this question asked of me. Do I divorce the current spouse and go back to try and get with the first one? Well, good luck getting the first one to take you back, first of all. But secondly, does it make any sense whatsoever to divide again? To tear apart yet again? No. That does not make sense. What about the sin of adultery? Because if I got divorced and then I remarried, I commit adultery, right? Right. So if I've committed adultery by remarrying, shouldn't I then get out of that marriage? No. Because adultery is not a perpetual state of sin, gang. I don't see anywhere in the Scripture that tells us that by committing adultery, by divorcing and remarriage, which, which the Bible calls adultery, or by sex happening, happening outside of marriage, or by an affair, or any of these things, I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where it says, that's the unforgivable sin. You are now in a perpetual state of adultery. You, you, you divorce, you're done. You're a sinner from here on out. I don't see that. I see one place in all Scripture that says there's an unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
which we talked about recently, Matthew 12, 31. Any sin and blasphemy. Listen, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Why? Because the heart is so hard it will not repent. It will not turn around. That's the only sin that's unforgivable. So how do I make things right? (laughs) You can't. Welcome to the Sinner's Club. You cannot go back and restore that broken marriage or those broken marriages. You can't make them right. You know what Paul goes on to say later in this chapter? He says, I want you, in whatever state you come to the Lord, that's where I want you to stay. If you're a slave when you come to the Lord, don't go running out trying to get yourself freed. Be a slave for Jesus. If you're a divorced person, remarried, and you come to the Lord, then be for Jesus in that marriage. Put Christ in the center of that marriage. I would never tell anyone divorced to try and make something right because two wrongs don't ever make it right. You know, I've realized over the years that membership of the Sinners Club is exclusive to all human beings. <laughs> Romans 3.23, Paul says, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For those of you who have never had an affair, who have been with the same person you married at the very beginning, and you look around and you think, yeah, be like us. <laughs> to that I would say that the adulterer and the divorcee is like you. A sinner too. Because we have all sinned. What did Jesus do about our sin? Go back to the beginning of Matthew 19. Look at the first verse. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Yeah, so what? So Jesus has started heading south. If you like to take notes in your Bible, you might write right there above Matthew 19, Jerusalem bound. Because from this point forward, Jesus sets His sights on Jerusalem and will not return to the Galilee. His teaching ministry there is over. He won't come back to the region until after His death, burial, and resurrection. Everything's accomplished. Then He will go back to the Galilee and meet His apostles there and spend some time hanging out with them and teaching them a little bit more. So when this legalistic trick question of divorce and remarriage comes up, Jesus' mind is set on the cross. Jesus is Jerusalem bound. He is heading to the one place that can provide the answer for messed up, broken, sinful lives. If you are divorced, repent and take it to the cross. Lord, I'm sorry. I, I own it. I did this. And take it to the cross of Jesus. If you've had an affair, repent and take it to the cross. Give it to the Lord. Struggling with forgiving a spouse who violated the marriage bed. Take it to the cross. And what if I'm struggling in my marriage right now? It hit me when I was just about done with all this study that this teaching is not a teaching looking back. This teaching is a forward-looking teaching. This teaching is about today and tomorrow and the day after that. I am not sharing these things to shame the divorcee or to resurrect the old guilt of an affair of past adultery, of past sin. The grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is so great that He cleanses us of the past while dealing truthfully with the now and the not yet. That's why we've got to talk about these things. Let's deal with things openly with the Lord. Because when we do, He is able to forgive, wash it away, and I start today, amazing, I start today clean and holy with Him again. Even in my third marriage? Yes. Even in your third marriage. Even though I still remember the... Yes. The Lord doesn't avoid the truth. He speaks it for our sake. Just as Jesus purposefully headed to Jerusalem and to the cross. I'll tell you one last thing here. To my mind, there's only one thing that can truly save a troubled marriage. And if you happen to be in a troubled marriage right now, as I know some are, hear this clearly. A troubled marriage can only be saved by the crucible of self-sacrifice. You see, when you take it to the cross and you see the sacrifice of Jesus for you, it does something. It gives you motivation to be sacrificial yourself. 
to lay down yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. A healthy marriage is maintained in the same way. If your marriage is great and you want it to continue to be great, self-sacrifice. You do for the other. You put your spouse ahead of you. And as I said earlier, you put Jesus right in the middle. Love Him more. You're going to love your spouse more. Your marriage is going to get better. Let Him be at the center of all of it. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Precious fellowship is my hope and prayer that we will reject the statistics of culture and instead reflect the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I first pray a prayer of repentance. I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. selfishness in my own marriage the way that I have treated my wife that does not reflect you Jesus we pray corporately as a fellowship a prayer of repentance we're sorry for the the wreckage that we've caused by our own sinful choices for the hurt We own before you the choices that we've made, but we say, Lord, would you come and heal and restore us? Lord, for those marriages past that have died, would you teach us not to walk in guilt, but to let those things go? And to walk in grace this morning. For the marriages that are struggling, Holy Spirit, I pray you will enter in and Jesus, you will be so present between husband and wife that the only choice is restoration. And may we, Lord Jesus, be a body who looks not with judgment on one another, but with love and forgiveness and healing.